Good morning, everyone. How are we doing? Yeah? Good. It's been been a great morning already, yeah? I mean, we just had amazing time with God in in worshiping his name, watching people get baptized. Now it's time to get into his word and kind of dig in and see what God has for us. Just remember, anytime you are in this building in an atmosphere for the Lord, that means that God is personally interacting with you, personally ministering to you. And I'm interested to see what message you hear. Everybody seems to hear a little bit of a different message from the Lord. And a lot of times I get the, Pastor, I love when you said X, right? I'm like, I didn't say that. That was clearly God just hanging out with you. That had nothing to do with me. But once again, the Holy Spirit is among us and he's doing amazing things. So I'm so glad that you are here. If you're brand new to us, We've been going through a yearly theme. The yearly theme is becoming. And what that means is that we are seeking to become all that God designed us to be. I would imagine that it is unique for each and every one of us because you were uniquely designed by God in a beautiful way. In that, we've been doing a couple different series, right? And this one happens to be going line by line through the book of 1 Peter. We call this series resilient, meaning how do we become bounce back Christians? What happens when we love the Lord, but then things don't go our way? What happens when we're in unfair circumstances? What happens when things are anti-Christian? What happens when persecution comes? How do we become the Christians that can rebound back when things go bad and still be like Jesus? That's what we've been studying. That's the whole point of this series. And Peter's been walking us through different difficulties and saying, you know what? How you act still matters when things are going bad. We're in part five of this series, and and I entitled today's message, Resilient Marriages. But I want to highlight something for you. It is time change. On behalf of God, you're welcome for the time change. This one here in the fall where you gain an hour, that is from the Lord. The one in the spring where you lose an hour, that is the devil. Yeah, all right. Well, this is God's time change, praise the Lord. Glad that you're here and you made it. We gave you an extra hour. Glad that you're here, all right. Now, I want to recap in case you have not been at the rest of the series, that the last time we were together, Peter started talking about being that resilient Christian in unfair situations when it has to do with bad authority. What do you do when the leadership above you is not pro-you? What if they're not pro-Christian? What if they are mean? What if they are just not nice people? What if they're just terrible leaders? What do Christians do? You understand what we are in secret that we are. We must be the same person all along. We don't get to be one type of Christian when things are going well, and then another type of Christian when things are bad. You know, a lot of us think about it like dieting, right? Like, well, you've got a cheat day. Some of us are like, man, I've been a good Christian for like six days. I get a cheat day. We're going to call that where you're being a jerk day. You understand what I'm saying? Where you're like, Lord, I have been so sweet to people, but they are getting on my last nerve. So I'm just going to be mean to people today, and we're going to call it good. I've been really good. But you have to understand you are who you are. we got to be that consistent, do you love Jesus? Is he really the boss of you? Are you submitted to him or not? Even when we suffer, are we still Christian? Are we still like Christ? So he began to give us some examples. The first example he used is what about national and local government? What if the national government is not pro-Christian? What if the local government is not pro-you? What if, as a matter of fact, you feel like they're on a completely different agenda and they're leading everything the wrong way? What are you going to do when they say, you're the problem? What are you going to do in that situation? Well, Peter was writing this during the reign of Emperor Nero, the very man that is going to be responsible for killing him and killing the Apostle Paul. These guys are talking about submitting to an authority that will eventually take their life. They know what they're talking about. Then he said, let's get a little bit more personal. What happens if you're in your job and your boss at your job is just not a good person? What if they're mean to you? What if it's a difficult situation that every time you go to work, you feel like 
There's a darkness on you. There's no other believers. There's no one else pro-Christian there. What are you going to do? Peter said, you know what? I need you to remember you're being watched. You see, the world is always watching us to see whether or not Christianity is real. They're watching us to see whether or not we're only Christians because it works for us. They're trying to figure out, is it just another philosophy? Because the way they see it, I don't need what you got. Man, I got my own philosophy. It's like, oh yeah, it works for you or it doesn't work for me. But when we go through difficulty, when we go through suffering, when we go through hard times, it demonstrates that we are not Christians because it's easier for us. We are Christians because it's reality. You see, our testimony shines when things get difficult. And we got to remember, we're always being watched. So now Peter says, well, let's take it one level even more intimate, a little bit more close to home. What if you're a Christian wife and your husband is a terrible leader? What happens if you've entered into this marriage covenant and now your husband is not pro-you? Let's say he's not even pro-Christian. Let's say he's leading the family in a terrible direction. Let's say he's leading the family into financial ruin. What's going to happen when you are in an unfair marriage? That's pretty personal, yeah? Well, that's what he's going to talk to us about. How do we as Christians operate in a marriage situation. Well, I want to talk about marriage for a moment. Are you tracking on what's going on in our society? Are you tracking that every succeeding generation is getting married less and less and later in life? Are you tracking that? Have you noticed that? Okay. Kind of started with my generation, right? Like you had, you had us growing up as latchkey kids. I was a Gen X, still am. You know, you grow up and your parents had gotten divorced and a lot of my friends' parents had gotten divorced and we kind of had to make a decision, right? Because boomers were kind of doing a different thing. And so we had to kind of make a decision what kind of marriage we were going to walk into. Are we going to get married? Are we not? But we pretty much just kind of hung in there. And then all of a sudden the millennial generation rose up and they were like, well, first of all, I am not doing the let's get married at 18 thing like my parents. You know what? I'm cool getting married at 34, Like, they pushed it off as far as they can, right? Because they're like, nope. And then, all of a sudden, we have Gen Gen Z coming up, and they're wondering whether or not to get married at all. So we have to ask the question, why is everybody pushing off marriage or not getting married? That's a fair question, yeah? Why? I have one answer for you, in my opinion, is the number one answer. Bad examples. If we had better marriages, they might see marriage as a viable option. But here's what they see. Oh, out in society, half of all marriages are going to get divorced. Why in the world would they want to do that? If they do not have a Christian reason to get married, and I'm going to suggest in a moment what the Christian reason to get married is. If they do not have that reason, if they are not mature enough to take one for the team because it's good for society, if they do not know the maturity of being able to say marriage will likely help shape you and make you a better version of yourself, if you don't know any of that and you're just looking out for yourself, why in the world would you get married? Why don't you just get all the benefits and try to figure it out along the way? You don't know that living together without true boundaries and security is really going to screw up for you. You don't know that yet. So why get married? All right, well, why are there so many divorces? Why is there such a a bad example out there? Do you guys know why? I'm going to give you the two number one reasons. How do you have two number ones? I'm not good at math. I'm going to give you the two reasons I think are most important. Number one, unrealistic expectations. Unrealistic expectations. Bottom line, you get married thinking it's one thing, turns out to be another thing, and you are super disappointed. And you are like, this is not what I signed up for. That's the number one reason, in my opinion, why there's so many divorces. Because here's the thing, you're like, you know what, we're going to get married and we're going to be best friends. We're going to do everything together and we're going to constantly be talking and talking and talking. And then later on, you're like, oh my gosh, they won't leave. (laughs) Like, oh, it's been a long time. 
There's some of us that get married and we're like, man, you're good looking, I'm good looking, right? Wiz, hot and heavy, yeah, like I'm really attracted in. Later on, you're like, oh, they don't have a personality. <laughs> oh dear, didn't know that was important. Then there's people that get married and they're like, you know what? We could really partner together and go somewhere, man. You grab your income, I grab my income, and we could combine those and we could do some serious stuff together. Here's what they don't know. When you get married, you enter into bizarro math. Here is bizarro math. One income plus one income equals a half income. I don't know if you knew this. But you're like, wait a second, I used to pay my bills, you used to pay your bills, now that we've combined them, we can't pay our bills. <laughs> How the heck did that happen? Like, that's not even logical, right? Unrealistic expectations, you walk in and it's just simply not what you thought it was. The second reason why I believe there are so many divorces is backed up by science, and it's this. We do not know how to repair when things go badly. The inability to use repair techniques is the number one wrecking of marriages. Because here's the reality, you're a human being. You're marrying another human being. You're putting yourself together for a long period of time under tension. Of course you're going to have challenges. That's normal. The question is not are we going to have conflict, the question is what do we do once we have conflict? The marriages that last put in repair techniques. And when I'm talking about repair techniques, I'm talking about do you know what it means to walk through forgiveness? Do you know what it means to have negotiation skills? Do you know what it means to listen with an attentive ear? Do you know what it means, right? You understand what I'm saying? You're going to have a breakdown. How do you walk through it and come out the other side stronger than you walked in? Because here's what's happening in most of our marriages. We have conflict and we try to just move past. Then we store up another conflict and we didn't heal it. We just store up another one and then we store up another one and we store up another one. And then all of a sudden we say, my marriage is broken beyond repair, I'm out. But the answer was a long time ago, doing repairs along the way. That's the only way we can survive because humans have conflict. How do we repair? That's the point. Do you know why God designed marriage in the first place? Because I'm not sure we do. When you understand why God created it, then you have realistic expectations walking into it. I'm gonna give you five reasons why I believe that God created marriage. Five reasons, if you're a note taker, write these down. Number one, a display of God's nature. A display of, God, of God's nature. Now this is probably not why you got married, but this is what God's looking for. When you have a Christian man marrying a Christian woman, people are supposed to be able from the outside look at your marriage and say, I now know more about God. Why? Because God poured his masculine qualities into the male. He poured his feminine qualities into the female. And when you are together, unified in diversity, you look more like the Trinity. They're supposed to be able to go, huh, when I talk to her, I get one kind of view of God that's super accurate, and hmm, when I talk to him, I see another view of God that's super accurate. I know more about God. That's how it was supposed to be. Number two, kingdom reality. Kingdom reality. Everyone should be able to see what would it look like if heaven was on earth. And here's what I mean. Jesus said in his prayer, may it be here on earth as it is in heaven. What did he mean? That there's a location where the people involved are submitted to the Father 100% and he gets to have his rule and reign. That means the Holy Spirit moves. That means there's the miraculous. That means there's forgiveness. That means that there is love. That's actually what it's for. Here's another one. Number three, to make godly people. To make godly people. Now, understand, I do not believe that everyone is called to have children, and I would suggest that some of you might reconsider. 
What I'm telling you is if you are going to have children, if you have children, what should happen is that you raise them up in the Lord to where their earliest memories, they breathe Jesus' air. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like they know, they've watched their parents, their parents pray to the Lord and they get through difficult circumstances by pulling together and seeking God, that they understand the atmosphere of their house is God-like. And then what happens is all of a sudden they end up getting saved themselves. They end up being filled with the Holy Spirit and they end up going out and being the salt and light that our world so desperately needs. That was the plan. Number four, a place of blessing. A place of blessing. Do you realize that marriage is supposed to be a blessing? If it has become something other than a blessing, we need to do some repair techniques. Doesn't mean it's easy, it's supposed to be a blessing. I didn't say it's supposed to be bliss. There is nothing about marriage that's supposed to be bliss. That's not what it's designed for. Bliss is for heaven, it's not for here. This is a blessing. A blessing means that you have the presence of the Holy Spirit in each other and you are actively seeking to serve one another. That's actually how marriage works. Number five, a furnace of transformation a furnace of transformation. Do you realize that God will use your significant other as the primary chisel to shape you into the image of God? How joyful is it to be chiseled? <laughs> Man, that sounds miserable. That sounds horrible. And if you don't look at it right, you think they're the ones causing you the problem. You know who's causing you the problem? God, because you know what? It's revealing that you are way out of line and you're not very mature or that you thought you were. And it is shaping and building you. All that pressure inside is revealing the real you and Jesus is asking you to submit that to him and become something different. Your, your most significant relationships reveal a lot about you. And that's why the fill in the blank, take a look at that. You see that fill in the blank? It says this, if you're, if you're on the app, right, you can just pop that open and fill in the blank. It's this, our hearts are revealed in marriage. Our hearts are revealed in marriage. Why? Because our significant relationships show us who we really are. You guys, do you understand that marriage is not the only way to fulfill community? Jesus wasn't married. Paul wasn't married. Two of our heroes were single and fulfilled their entire lives. What we need is community. But if we're going to use marriage as a part of community, there's a way to act and there's a way not to act. And that's what Peter's really trying to get at. Now, once again, I need to give you the context because once we open this up, Everyone's gonna try to read it the wrong way. Peter's goal in this book is not to tell you how to organize your marriage. Peter's point is not trying to give you a handbook on how you and your spouse should interact. What he's trying to focus on is the witness of Jesus Christ. Our marriages should reflect Jesus, not the devil. You understand what I'm talking about? People are watching to see what it looks like to be a Christian. You've got to do it for the sake of the Lord. Even if you feel like, man, this person does not deserve my respect. Do you understand God put in the love and respect cycle for a reason? When we start going the disrespect and I don't love you and we start going the opposite direction, that's more of a devil cycle than a God cycle. People should be able to look in and realize you think God is so important that both of you in the marriage have submitted to him and he's your referee. Ah. One last context point because this will make it all understandable. In the ancient world when Peter was writing, the church was the most liberating place for women on the planet. You see, people misread the Bible. Oh, man, I'm not into the Bible. That's all misogynistic, and it's just all, you know, it's everything's about negative about women, and it's always about women being put down, and that's because you don't know how to read it. If you read it right, it is the most empowering book ever. 
So let's talk about why that's so important. Because now, not only did Roman society, which was running it at the time, start to kind of empower women a little bit more. If you were a wealthy woman, if you were an influential woman, you could get a little bit more education. And there was starting to be kind of a liberation in society. But in the church, check this out. Normally, in the Jewish environment, historically, you were treated that you were not an independent person. Everything ran through your husband. As a matter of fact, you couldn't make promises on your own. You couldn't make contracts on your own. You were either responsible to your dad or you were responsible to your husband. As a matter of fact, some people, if they took it the wrong way, started to treat women a little bit more like accessories and property. And they began to say, you know what? You don't matter in my society. Don't get involved in politics. Don't get involved in any leadership. That was the environment. Now, all of a sudden, in the church, you walk in and you start hearing this message. We believe in the priesthood of all believers. We believe that you ladies are just as gifted, just as called, just as powerful. You are just as anointed. That Jesus doesn't see you as second class citizens. You have all absolute equality in the name of Jesus. That he is the one that you have been clothed with. Therefore, we are all the same in God's eyes. All of a sudden, we start hearing phrases in Galatians chapter three that says there is neither male nor female. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Stop with the whole division thing. We are all one in Christ. Ladies, you are just as much of an heir of future heaven as any man is. When you start hearing that for the first time in your life, that you matter, that you are valuable, that God deals with you on an individual basis with love and cherishing, what does that do to your head? Well, some of the ladies combined that with society and it started going south. They started lording it over their husbands. They started lording it over people in the church and things started swinging way out of balance. And Peter was like, "Uh uh-uh, not in my church. Knock it off. And that's the context we're about to read. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter three, verse one. 1 Peter chapter three, verse one. This is actually the sermon. I don't know what all that other stuff was. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, meaning in, in bad authority or leadership situations that I've been talking about already and how you act. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some of your husbands don't obey the word, meaning they're not really believers, they're not Christians, they may be won over without a word by the conduct of their wives. You don't nag them into the kingdom, you live and demonstrate them into the kingdom when they see your respectful and pure conduct. All right, let's hit it head on. This is the one that makes a bunch of women cringe. Wives, submit to your husbands immediately. Boom. What did you say? Did you say I got to listen to that guy? That guy's a yahoo. What are you talking about? Man, I am faster, smarter, and better than that guy in every single way. Talk about running a house. That guy can't even run his car. What I'm trying to tell you is I know how to run a house. I'm the one that has the gifted of leadership. I'm the one that's strong. I'm the one that knows what's up, right? Boy, we get our hackles up, right? Don't tell me what I ought to do. Okay, hold on. I don't think you're looking at it right You know what the word submit means? Hupotasamai, it's in Greek. It means to place oneself under in structure. And you go, yeah, that still means he gets to make all the decisions. Hold on, hold on. Because here's what's intriguing about it. Are you sure that you're uncomfortable with submitting? Because I'm pretty sure you do it in every segment of society. Pretty sure you do it every day. We submit to what? We submit to judges in the court. We submit to police on the street. We submit to bosses at work. We submit to the laws of the land. We submit to our teachers in school. Are you telling me there's any area in society that you don't submit? Come on, it's the only thing we do. When you're not God, you're submitting to someone all the time. Why do those structures exist? For efficiency, and effectiveness. It doesn't speak at all to value or capability. The word hupotasamai is used most commonly in a military way. It means that you are outranked. 
If you join the military right now, you may be better, stronger, faster in everything than your commanding officer, but guess what? You're outranked. It doesn't speak about your capabilities. It says they're going to get held accountable for what happens in the field. It doesn't matter how big and bad you are. You submit underneath their rank for the sake of a clear chain of communication, a clear chain of command, and that allows everything to run more smoothly. You're like, yeah. Okay, but yeah, but not at home, right? Hold up. God designs all structures based on his own nature. God designs with order for effectiveness and efficiency. How do we know that? Because it's how he acts himself. Okay, let's talk about this. Christianity over the history has argued and fought over what is legit doctrine. One of the things that we lock down in our doctrine that everybody is supposed to agree upon is that God is at least a triune being. Is that correct? We call it the Trinity. And you're like, I don't understand all that. Don't worry, I don't either. Here's the point. You all know because if I said he, is, he reveals himself one God in three persons, you're like, that sounds weird. Yeah, but you know it. Why? It's the Father, Son, and how in the world did you name that? You know God reveals himself in three. You know there's only one God. That's the Shema, hero Israel. The Lord our God is one. How do you get one in three? I don't know, but check this out. When he reveals himself in three, all three are co-equally God. By definition, God can't be anything less than God. That means the Father is equal to the Son. The Son is equal to the Holy Spirit. Is that correct? Have they ever been anything otherwise? They have not. They are coexistent and co-equal in their essence so why then, when the Son came to earth, did he submit to the Father? That seems weird. Why would God submit to God? For efficiency and effectiveness. The Son said, I will not teach anything my Father doesn't tell me. I will not do anything I do not see my Father do. Everything I'm doing on this planet is I'm following my Father's directives, and I will submit to him all the way to the cross and death and resurrection. Do you realize the Holy Spirit did the same thing? Jesus said, it is better that I go away because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and he's gonna reveal everything that I told you. Why can't the Holy Spirit come by himself? Gotta wait to be sent, why? Because he was submitting to the Son. If the Trinity submits in absolute equality, it cannot mean less capability because they're all God all the time. So why does God design with structures? Efficiency, effectiveness, and he bases it on role and function, not on capability, right? And this is where we take it a little bit too far. We're like, all right, all right, all right hold on, hold on. Tell me again how the home works. Well. The home works by God designed out that the husband is the head of the home. You're like, I don't believe that. Well, that's a problem for you. <laughs> Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. All right, so you got to figure out what to do with that if that's not something you buy. I think our biggest problem is not the idea that the husband is the head of the home, it's that the husband hasn't been a good leader. Do you know what it means biblically to lead like Jesus? It means you're the manager of the house and your job is to serve everyone in your home and make sure they can thrive. That's your job. I'm not sure why somebody wouldn't wanna to submit to someone that is pro them and giving them everything they need to thrive. I think that would be a little bit odd. Jesus, the Bible says, serve as the Lord served the church. He died for the church. Gentlemen, if you're a husband, until you're dead, you're not done serving. Jesus went all the way for the church to die for the church to make sure the church would be raised up. Every husband's mandate is to raise his family up, whatever it takes. That's how Jesus serves higher the title, greater the servant. That's how it works. I'm not sure, ladies, you want 
the responsibility of making all the decisions because you're going to get busted by God directly. I'm telling you, gentlemen, the instructions that come upon us as husbands are much more extensive than the ones that come to our wives. Let me get back to it. So people say, so, okay, hold on, hold on. The woman has to submit to the husband. Why? Because he's the head of the house. Yeah, but I'm better than he is. No one's disagreeing. I'm smarter than he is. Yes, you are. (laughs) If he's a good manager, he will use your brilliance and follow your lead on that. That's what great managers do. Why would you argue with that? That's silliness. Put the best one in the right job for the right thing. Cool. That's still taking care of your household, right? But I'm sorry, let's say it again. A wife has to submit to a husband because he's the head of the home. Well, that's interesting because here's where people take it too far. Oh man, that's why women can't serve in the church. That's why you can't have a female pastor. That's why you can't preach up here. The Bible is totally clear. Whatever happens at home, the same thing happens in, the, in, in the God's house. Oh, I'm sorry, are you sure? Because I'm about to blow your mind. Here's why. I'm sorry, let's go, let's go back to our Our scripture, yeah? Same scripture you read before. Here we go. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. You're like, yeah, 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 we read that part. In my Bible, it's underlined like three times. (laughs) That's not funny. (laughs) Did you read verse 23? For the husband's the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. Let's, Let's go back through it. Who's the head of the church? Jesus Christ. Who's the head of the church? Jesus Christ. Didn't you say it was a man? Oh, whoops, you didn't. You said it was Jesus Christ. Are we clear on that? Do you understand that if Jesus Christ is the head of the church, we're all wives? There are no husbands in this room. Why? Because the Bible says that he is the bridegroom and we are the bride. Excuse me, if we're all wives, why are we arguing about who can reveal the revelation of God? Who's the head of our house? Jesus Christ. It's not a man. Just chew on that one for a while. All right, moving on. Here's Peter's point. The evangelistic impact of how we live our lives when things don't go our way. Ladies, if you're married to a guy who is not following the Lord, it's probably best to demonstrate the power of Jesus in your life than tell him. Because if he's not doing it in the first place, he's probably not listening to you. So live in such a way that it starts to morph his belief that God can do things. That was Peter's concern. And here's what's interesting. This is once again one of those you missed a beautiful liberating statement. Remember, in the ancient world, you don't talk to women directly. You talk through their husbands, especially in the Middle East. You know what Christianity just did? Peter addressed wives directly. You are an independent human being that is serving the Lord. I'm not talking to your husband right now. I'm talking to you. You have your own power and ability to follow the Lord. I'm not dealing with your husband right now. Do you understand how liberating that is? because they were never given that right anywhere outside the church. What was Peter's point? When you get saved, ladies, you should be better to live with, not worse. And you're like, yeah, but now I'm liberated. Man, now I know what Jesus thinks of me. Now I know I'm awesome. Now I know that all this garbage you've been feeding me ain't right. Now I know that I am just as good and gifted as you. And then all of a sudden the pendulum starts swinging really hard. And things start getting out of alignment again. Verse three, do not let your adorning be external, wives, the braiding of hair or the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. That's a very specific circumstance. What was going on in the church? Peter had these ladies who were not only kind of caught up in the liberation in their society, but now they're in church and they're like, yeah, I'm awesome. 
And they started to use their wealth and influence and start pushing it, not only on their husbands, but on everybody else in the church. They were wearing super expensive hairdos, super expensive jewelry, super expensive clothing for a reason. They were exerting their power. And Peter said, that's not what we do. So let's talk about why we wear what we wear. Do you guys know why you dress the way you dress? You're like, well, because it's cute. Maybe. Guys are like, well, it's what I found. <laughs> Since it is currently still laying on the floor by your bed, of course you found it for the third day in a row. <laughs> Odd. Do you realize everything you wear makes a statement and you are not just wearing what you want. You think you're wearing it simply for comfort and it's what you want. That is incorrect. You know how I know that? Nobody's in their jammies today. <laughs> jammies are more comfortable, are they not? Why aren't you wearing them? Because you don't think that's okay. Somebody's going to call you out for it. But everything you wear is a walking billboard. Gentlemen, when you mow the lawn with long black socks and shorts, you're saying something. And I don't think it's what you want to say. You're like, it's practical. <laughs> Is it now? Here's the thing. Not all of the things that we wear throughout history are practical. Can we agree on that? Let's talk about me as the greatest offender. In the 1990s, I wore parachute pants. I never plan on jumping out of a plane. In no way was I going skydiving. I saw MC Hammer did it and I thought, hmm. But that man moves in a way that I cannot move. I do not need that much room. Should have wore regular pants. Why the heck am I wearing parachute pants? That's strange. Yeah? Here's another one. In the 2000s, my wife bought me men's style clog slip-on shoes. What a horrible invention. Literally, just to walk down the street, I had to knuckle up my toes so they would hang on to my shoes so they wouldn't go flying. This is why the Lord put backs on our shoes. Why would you take them away? That is madness. I regret every bit of it. In the 80s, I wore pants so tight you had to put socks on first. <laughs> Ladies, you've been doing this forever, yeah? You know if you put them on second, every time you pull your pants down, it rolls them up. That's not a thing. It's why girls wear the little baby socks, right? Ladies, if you think you are escaping this, you are not. The very fact that Aquanet was a viable product at one point demonstrates that you are not knowing what you're doing. Nobody's bang should have been that high. Do you understand that is wind resistance? You were getting less gas mileage the entire time. It's embarrassing. But most of us dress to fit in. And you go, I don't dress to fit in. All right, cool. Let's talk about it. You now work at the Steelworkers Union. You show up in a polo. Thank you guys, look at what Chuck's wearing. Chuck, what are you doing? Uh, work? No, no, what are you wearing? A polo? Why are you wearing a polo, dude? We wear flannel. Because uh, it's sensible? You guys, Chuck's wearing a sensible polo. Do you understand you're not gonna last long? Go out and buy some flannel, that's what we wear. See, here's the funny thing, you think you're so independent, you'll end up fitting in with whatever group because you don't wanna be called out for it and have the hassle. So you just shift into it. Most of us just want to fit in. But some of us want to stand out. And we're standing out for a variety of reasons. Sometimes we're standing out because we're trying to say, look at me, right? But sometimes it doesn't mean that. Have you ever been in the mall and had a goth kid walk towards you? It's 95 degrees, they're wearing a trench coat. Not sure why, but wow, that looks hot. He's got dark eyeliner on, his fingernails are painted black, and he has his hair in his face, and he looks very upset about something. And he's either going to cast a spell on you, or he's just going to growl at you as he passes by. Now, why is he dressed like that? On one hand, you can say he's saying, look at me, I actually have a different style, and I find it interesting. Or he's saying this, I want no part of your society, I want no part of you, leave me alone. But it's still a statement, is it not? Some of us dress to attract. Yeah? Do we attract opposite gender or same gender? Well, here's interesting. Almost every woman I've ever met dresses for other women. You know why? Because men don't appreciate accessories. 
And you want to talk about who you dress for? Ladies, you're dressing for other women because they are brutal. Here's how I know that. You're in Starbucks, right? And you're trying to talk to a female. Another female walks into Starbucks. Immediately, she's talking to you. You think she's engaged with you. She is not. She is now scanning over to the door. Her eyes dart, and she immediately starts the home shopping network. She starts figuring out, oh, look at those jeans. Those were awesome. Oh, you know what? I would never buy that blouse. And oh my gosh, look at her shoes and blah, blah, blah. And then zoop, she's right back with you. You're like, I thought men were bad. No, no. Women are far worse. (laughs) The amount of scrutiny that every woman has to go through walking into a room because other women are there, that's who they're dressing for. And when guys try to dress for opposite, oh, it's so sad. (laughs) Women just look at you with pity. Oh, honey, you tried. You tried. You know what? Yeah, that is a good jacket if it was for five sizes too big. You need a woman's help. That's all I'm trying to say. Do you understand what my billboard says? You guys know how I'm dressed, right? What does my billboard say? You know what it says? I'm a grown man and my wife still dresses me. That is exactly what this says. Do you understand? What are you trying to say, Lance? I'm trying to say, hey, honey, that's what I'm trying to say. There you go. That was it. Unfortunately, some of us dress to try to impress and dominate. And that was the problem in the early church. They were wearing stuff that said, I'm better than you. And that's a problem. Have you ever worn anything that says, aren't you jealous of me? I'm wealthier than you. I don't have your problems. I'm not sure why you're struggling. I'm good. You ever worn one of those? Because it's mean. Peter said, you know what makes a woman truly beautiful? Her insides. And ladies, one of the things that is so beautiful about the insides is a quiet and gentle spirit. Boy, that makes some ladies freak out. Quiet and gentle spirit? Man, I will rip your head off. (laughs) Hold on. Do you know what those words mean? Here's what gentleness means. Sweet friendliness. It's the opposite of harsh and rough. Quiet spirit means peacefulness and tranquility, and the opposite is agitated, restless, and rebellious. You know why that matters? Because ladies, when you walk in the room without these traits, every woman has to worry about you. That's pretty unfair. You just dominated their day. They're not going to approach you for prayer. They're not going to approach you for wisdom. They're not going to approach you for anything. They don't want you sitting in a row. They want you to go away. But if you are truly empowered, if you are truly a woman of God, if you are truly anointed, shouldn't you be able to walk in a room and every woman be thankful you're there? Shouldn't you be their peace? Shouldn't you be the one that they're like, oh, I'm so glad you're here. Man, I don't have to worry about me. I don't have to worry about, I'm not telling you to dress down. I'm telling you to dress wise. Because other women should be peaceful around you, not scared. Verse 5, Peter pushes the limits. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to dress themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, like Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him her master and Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. You guys know this story? It's pretty weird. Genesis chapter 12. Abraham has a woman that he's married to named Sarah, and they're called to go out on God's behalf. Well, as they're on their travels, they have to go through a place called Egypt. Well, Egypt didn't really get along with this group very much, and they were kind of doing their own thing. And so Abraham was like, shoot, my wife is so good looking that when we go into this territory, they're going to notice, and then they're going to mention it to their bosses, and they're going to steal my wife and kill me. So he turns to his wife and says, honey, if you really loved me, you're going to pretend to be my sister. She's like, I'm sorry, why is that? Well, so they take you and I live. (laughs) Oh, that's a good idea. And she obeyed. This is the only time in scripture where the word obey is used for wives and husbands. Sarah took it to the extreme and said, okay, 
she was 65 years old. Walking in, it happened. The, she's so good looking, the Egyptians started talking about her, talked to her about Pharaoh. Pharaoh takes her away from her husband into his palace, endangers her life. Thank the Lord, God steps in, strikes his household with a plague and says, if you touch my daughter, I'll kill you. He's like, hey, whoa, 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 hold up, hold up, what's going on? He's like, she's married. He's like, he said it was his sister. Hey, man, why are you messing with me? He's like, well, technically, she's my half-sister. Like, we have the same, <laughs> same dad, we don't have the same mom, and it's not important. Yeah, it is. First of all, that's gross. Second of all, dude, you put me in danger. You're like, wow, that was, she followed that? That's terrible leadership. But did you see who defended her? God. And then you're like, woo, they got through that one. Nope, Genesis chapter 20, he does it again. Hey, we're walking along, we're in a place. I don't think these are good guys. There's a guy named Abimelech and he might end up killing me to get you because you're so incredibly attractive. And that's exactly what happened. By the way, she's 99. <laughs> Ladies, if you're turning heads at 99, you are legit. <laughs> sure enough. Abimelech takes her into his house. Meanwhile, Abraham's fine. And you know what happens? God comes to him in a dream and he says, you touch her, I'll kill you. He's like, I thought it was his sister. That's what he told me. God goes, I don't care. You return her or I'll kill you. That's how it works. She went to the extreme of saying, all right, babe, whatever you, got, whatever you want. And God stepped into her defense. Her husband not good leadership. God's leadership, excellent. But that's how the structure works. Women submit to their husbands because God's going to bust your husband. <laughs> he said, I, do not give way to fear. You guys, there's two ways that, that wives can feel fear. One of them is, my husband's going to make fun of me for getting saved and I need to do whatever he says because he's the boss. That's where the Bible says, nope. You are an independent moral agent. I need you to choose Jesus and walk with Jesus. I don't care what your husband says. The other way that we get afraid is that what if he makes bad decisions and does bad stuff with a family? It's very nerve-wracking because you married a human being and he's not going to make all the right decisions. And that's where you have to develop a trust for God to lead your man. And that's hard, scary. And if you think that the gentlemen are not asked to alter their behavior for the sake of Jesus, you would be incorrect. Pick it up in verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Oh, what did he just say? Gentlemen, you love your wife like Christ loved the church. You serve her all your life. You live with her in an understanding way. You listen to her, you hear her heart, and you figure out the way to best lead her individually. Because if you don't, if you disrespect my daughter, if you're mean to my daughter, if you harass my daughter, I will block your prayers. Wait, you're going to what? What does that have to do with it? Oh, your horizontal relationships affect your vertical relationship. You do not get to play Christian guy at church and look all good at church, and then at home you're mean. You don't get to play that game. You think God doesn't see you at home? You think God doesn't follow you home? Oh, yeah, he does. And he's saying this, you thought your life was harder before. How about me being against you? Because I'm not answering your prayers. You do not get to treat her however you want and then play a little Christian game. That's not going to happen on my watch. Ladies, God is watching out for you. Gentlemen, we have a high responsibility. Here's what he just said. Don't ever take advantage of your authority. So he actually mentions a what? Women are the weaker vessel. That's another one. Those are fighting words. Weaker vessel. I can beat that dude in arm wrestling. In what way are women the weaker vessel to men? 
Because historically, a lot of talk has been women are weak-willed. Women are intellectually inferior. You guys, that is garbage. The Bible does example after example after example of women doing things even better than men. That's not the point. There is no way that is true. So in what way are men stronger than women? There's two ways. Number one, physically. How does harm happen in this world where men force themselves on women? Usually it is physically. Second way that men are stronger than women, societally. Remember, in the ancient world, women cannot get divorced. Only men can. So they held the power over the family. Here's his point. If you ever take advantage of either one of those strengths, I'm your problem. See, God's not playing around. The way leadership works for a Christian is you do it like Jesus did it. Higher the title, greater the servant. It always goes upside down. Jesus Christ, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, came down to this planet, setting aside the perks of the Godhead that he might serve a people that didn't even respect him and ultimately killed him. Then who are we? Rayon, can you come on out here and lead us? You guys, there is no room for arrogance with a Christian. If you're not God, why are you acting like you are? It doesn't matter who you are. The minute we get into this, I'm in charge. No, I'm in charge. No, I'm in charge. The minute we go there, we've missed Jesus. You guys, we're different. Christians have been given the inside scoop as to what life is about, yes? We know God. We know his magnificence. We know it's not all about us. We know there are supernatural forces interacting with us. We know that we are eternal and that our our eternal life begins the day that we get saved and lasts forever. We know that our next life is actually our best life, not right now. We know this life is our only shot to honor God with faith when we can't see him or prove him. We know that we're all in this together. We know we need each other to get by. We know that everyone's gifting is necessary. We know the church is made up of diversity for a reason. We know that none of us is greater than any of the rest of us, but that we are glorious only because of what Jesus did for us and because the Holy Spirit is within us. For that reason, submitting is the only way of life. For a Christian, why would we do anything else? Who are we? Everybody else has trouble in their life. Why are we not the ones that are helping out? Why are we not the ones bringing a smile to a person's face who has been crushed? Why are we not the solution to somebody's prayers? Why are we not the one slowing down and listening to somebody and hearing their heart? Why are we not those? Why are we still fighting about who's in charge? Why are we still arguing about why we're a big deal? Why are we talking to other people and posting online about how awesome we are? When will we learn? We're not that big of a deal. And dang it, we're not gonna make it unless we pull together. I got enough pressure from the outside world. I don't need it from the inside too. When are we going to realize we are each other's best asset? When are we going to realize our marriages are not about rights, but about unity and partnership? When are we going to know? 